everybody. Welcome to Narrative Live. It's so good to be with you tonight um, at 7 o'clock on a Tuesday. It's always a good conversation we have. And tonight we've got Glenn Kirshner with us, who's the brilliant federal prosecutor, former federal prosecutor, current host of the podcast Justice Matters, and also a uh, former assistant U.S. attorney at the D.C. U.S. office. Hi, Glenn. How are you? Great to have you on the show hey, tonight. Hey, Zev. How are you? Hey, before you start, can I give props to your graphics people? Because every time I join you and you do your intro graphics, I feel like I'm in a Stanley Kubrick film. It's like very immersive and inspirational. I try to get you cool. in the mood. I try to get you. In the, I am the graphics people, good. so uh, you're giving the props to me. But thank you. I appreciate the. <laughs> I appreciate you. We have a huge team here of one. Sandy Bacon will be joining us a little bit later on. She's the independent journalist who covers a lot of the things related to uh, the extreme right, and she was at the January 6th uh, insurrection, so she's got great insights. But the first part of the show tonight is all about looking at this incredible interview that we saw in 60 Minutes the other day uh, with uh, Michael Sherman, who is the uh, the prosecutor in charge of this investigation into January the 6th, and it is uh, quite interesting that he did a 60 Minutes interview. It's, it sort of feels like it's not really uh, part of protocol. And he might have even broken protocol and caught the Biden White House by surprise. Then what was your take on that interview? And so for a former career federal prosecutor, it was absolutely bizarre because we operate under what's called the U.S. Attorney's Manual. That's kind of our Bible. It's the care and feeding of federal prosecutors, the do's and don'ts. Yeah. And it says in no uncertain terms, and this, this, this is the subject of my last two YouTube videos, that the Department of Justice prosecutors employees do not make comments publicly, do not uh, speak with the media about ongoing investigations. With a couple of exceptions, the most notable being if the United States attorney in your jurisdiction or the assistant attorney general, one of the bigwigs at the Department of Justice, gives you advanced approval. Well, what did we learn today? He had no approval. And yet he ran his mouth on 60 Minutes talking about the ongoing investigation, the nature of the evidence that the prosecutors have, and frankly, more importantly, don't have, which I'd really like to know if I was an insurrectionist. Then he started predicting potential future charges of sedition. Now, Zev, I don't necessarily disagree with many of his factual assertions, but it was absolutely improper, unethical, and inappropriate for him to go rogue like that without departmental approval and start to throw all these bombs into the public square. You're already seeing one judge, Judge Mehta, ordering all of the attorneys in the Proud Boy cases to appear before him, I think, virtually to talk about the latest public comments made in this case. That spells trouble. It may not lead to any relief to these particular defendants, but it's a really bad look to go rogue in one of the most consequential criminal investigations of our time and perhaps of all time, an, an, an insurrection, an attempted overthrow of the federal government. Now, he actually was put in place there by uh, the, the Trump administration, right? He was reporting to Bill Barr, presumably. Um, and he is a, you know, he's a Trumpite, really. That's basically what we're talking about. And yet here he is going on 60 Minutes. It seems to me like he was basically blowing up the case because he is basically making it a lot harder to prosecute the case. Is that what you're saying? 
I don't know what his intent was. I don't know if it's an ego as big as all outdoors. I don't know if it's a, a, a terminal case of hubris. I don't know if he's just getting ready to try to sell his story um, because he left the DC US Attorney's Office. First, he, and you're exactly right, Zev, he was a Bill Barr, Donald Trump acolyte. I think he caught Trump's attention by prosecuting uh, a trespass case at Mar-a-Lago. Go figure. I guess that's what makes somebody qualified to be the top prosecutor. Wait, so in he was Washington. the prosecutor in in the same district that uh, that uh, Donald Trump is an owner of Mar-a-Lago. He was at oh, the U.S. Attorney's pretty, Office for the Southern District of Florida. So yes, and remember, after he was installed, what did he do? He worked mightily to ensure that Mike Flynn's criminal case got dismissed, doing a favor, though, for Donald Trump's criminal associate, Mike Flynn. So he is not to be trusted. And I think it's interesting that the minute Joe Biden took office, one of the things he went about doing is pushing Michael Sherwin out of the acting U.S. attorney job in D.C. and installing somebody, Channing Phillips, who was a colleague of mine for decades and is a wonderful ethical, honest, straight up prosecutor. So hey, I'm glad Channing Phillips is now there heading up the insurrection investigation. But I, I am stunned that Michael Sherwin kind of tried to blow up the case the way he did by making unauthorized statements to the media. I've got a few clips. I want to play one of them and then we'll come back on the other side and talk about what he says here. Of those 400 cases, the majority of those 80, 85 percent, maybe even 90, you have individuals both inside and outside the Capitol that breached the Capitol, trespassed. You also have individuals, roughly over 100 that we've charged with assaulting federal officers and local police officers. The 10 percent of the cases, I'll call the more complex conspiracy cases where we do have evidence. It's in the public record where individual militia groups from different facets, Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, Proud Boys, did have a plan. We don't know what the full plan is to come to D.C., organize and breach the Capitol in some manner. He does make a distinction there between the 10% and the 90%, right? He sort of, he's already making a distinction between these two groups of people who showed up at January the 6th. And he seems to say, you know, yes, these guys may have had a plan, but then later on we'll hear him make a bit of an excuse for them as he's sort of separating them from everybody else. Is that what he's doing? I don't know what he's trying to accomplish. I, I, will, I will tell you, in my heart, I think what he was doing was trying to sell Michael Sherwin and trying to land some kind of a gig when he inevitably leaves government. Now, it's been reported that even though he left the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, he's trying to go home again to the Miami U.S. Attorney's Office. I'd be surprised if they'd have him, only because I am pretty sure there is already a referral of Michael Sherwin to the Department of Justice Office of Professional Responsibility. When there is a, an allegation of a federal prosecutor engaging in possible misconduct, instantly that gets referred to OPR for an investigation and sanctions if appropriate. He should be also, in my opinion, because he blatantly violated the rules of the Department of Justice, just mm -hmm. blatantly. So he should also be referred to his own state bar, wherever he is admitted to practice law. And just so your listeners, your viewers know, before we become federal prosecutors, we must pass one state bar exam and be admitted to the practice of law in at least one state. 
then we can prosecute nationwide as federal prosecutors. He needs to be referred to both the DOJ OPR and to his state bar for an investigation and if appropriate sanctions, because, you know, this is, it was just so far out of bounds what he did and he knew it. And every current and former federal prosecutor knows it as well. He mentioned three different groups there, but he did not mention anyone on this slide here. He did not mention any of the people that I think are the real organizers of this entire January the 6th event. In all our investigation, you know, it's been Michael Flynn, Roger Stone, and Alex Jones, certainly, who have carried the biggest weight here in terms of organizing it and getting it together. And then, you know, Steve Bannon played a role. Certainly yesterday, Sidney Powell admitted through her lawyer that she played a role because she said she lied about all those uh, cheating allegations she made. And then Rudy Giuliani joined her. And then, of course, Ali Alexander was the organizer of the Stop the Steal event. He didn't get mentioned either. Uh, are we led to believe that none of these people are going to get prosecuted by uh, by the U.S. Uh, DOJ? So I am loath to open my comments with something like, in Michael Sherwin's defense, because <laughs> what he did was indefensible, but you know what? If there is any little bit of good news, it's that he didn't start gratuitously throwing other names into the mix that have not surfaced in the public reporting. I'll give him credit, if only for sticking by and large to the public reporting. But he should not have confirmed that they're investigating Donald Trump because there have been no public charges brought against Donald Trump. And one of the rules is we can't speak publicly about any potential target or defendant who has not been publicly charged. So I'm actually glad he didn't throw all those other names in the mix. That would have been sort of an additional transgression. I don't think we can take away from that, that all of those people that you just depicted Mm. are in the clear. I think they are far from in the clear. Right. Let's let's, let's listen to the clip that you said about about Donald Trump, because that was interesting too. Let's listen to how he phrased all of this. Has the role of former President Trump been part of your investigation? It's unequivocal that Trump was the magnet that brought the people to D.C. on the 6th. Now the question is, is he criminally culpable for everything that happened during the siege, during the breach. What I can tell you is this, based upon, again, what we see in the public record and what we see in public statements in court, we have plenty of people, we have soccer moms from Ohio that were arrested saying, well, I did this because my president said I had to take back our house. That moves the needle towards that direction. Maybe the president is culpable for those actions, but also you see in the public record too, militia members saying, you know what? We did this because Trump just talks a big game. He's just all talk. We did what he wouldn't do. The magnet. There's something quite electric about his eyes there. He does seem like he's quite uh, impressed with Donald Trump. And then he goes on to explain, um, you know, that there are two two different ways of attacking this. That there's the soccer bomb from Ohio who took the orders, and then and then he describes what the uh, what the uh, Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers who are being prosecuted under a conspiracy charge, what they have been saying. And he's he's basically telling Donald Trump what they're saying about him. I mean, that sounds illegal to me. And none of that provides a defense because you think about it, he's saying two things. He's saying, one, Donald Trump, in fact, incited the insurrection when it comes to the what he refers to as the soccer mom defendants, Mm -hmm. which is a criminal offense to incite an insurrection. And then there's another more hardcore crew of anti-democratic, you know, wannabe militia men, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, et cetera, 
who were concerned that Donald Trump wasn't forceful and vigorous enough in trying to overthrow the government. So they had to take matters into their own hands. Well, guess what? Neither one of those two things are particularly helpful to Donald Trump. Donald Trump, Zev, has criminal liability for inciting this insurrection. He organized it. He ginned them up. He set the date. There were others who helped transport the prospective insurrectionists to the rally. He then said, here's what I want you to do. Go down the street to the Capitol and stop the steal. Mm. He was giving them the direction to go stop what was in progress, which was the certification of the electoral college count. That is inciting an insurrection. It is also conspiracy to commit sedition. None of this, in my opinion, is a particularly close call on the evidence. For Trump, you think that it's actually that he is, he's quite clearly uh, should be prosecuted for this. Give me three hours in front of a jury in D.C. and uh, and I will get him convicted based on the evidence, a fair assessment of the evidence. So let's bring in one more thing here then, because he as well, Mr. Sherwin, found himself at the actual event. He was a witness to the whole thing. And not just a, uh, an accidental witness. He was there behind police lines, apparently in a sweatsuit because he was running or jogging or whatever it was. But he wasn't really. He was just there to take a look at what was going on. And he not only attends the initial part where Trump is talking, but then he follows this group of militia members from the Oath Keepers all the way to the Capitol. So he's a real a real attached witness to the actual part of the, of the event where there was an insurrection piece of it. So um, let's take a listen to that last clip. It'll be the last we hear of him, thankfully. Um, and then we'll bring in Sandy Bacon about this as well, because I'm sure she's got some interesting things to say. Earths, popcorn, cotton candy, I saw hot dogs. As the morning progressed, I noticed, though, there were some people that weren't the typical, like, carnival-type people. I noticed there were some people in tactical gear. They were tacked up with Kevlar vests. They had the military helmets on. Those individuals, I noticed, left the speeches early. They headed to the Capitol, and Sherwin walked with them. You could see it was getting more riled up. You gotta stop us! And more people with bullhorns chanting and yelling, And it became more aggressive. Where it was initially pro-Trump, it digressed to anti-government, anti-Congress, anti-institutional. And then I eventually saw people climbing the scaffold. Look at this! Oh my God! The scaffolding was being set up for the inauguration. When I saw people climbing up the scaffolding, hanging from it, hanging flags, I was like, this is going bad fast. It's interesting that he makes a distinction there, Glenn. You know, he sort of says there's a pivot there between the crowd. There's suddenly an anti-government thing. It's no longer a, a, a pro-Trump thing. It's sort of like he separated them. He gave them an excuse no. for, for doing what they were doing. Cassandra, exactly. what did you think? Did you think that was yeah, what was going exactly. on in the ground? Exactly. Well, first of all, let me tell you what, hap- what actually happened. This was the third Stop the Steal rally. Uh, the first one was uh, the 11th of uh, the 14th of November the day after Trump fired everybody in the Pentagon and installed Chris Miller and those guys, right? Uh, And there were a lot of MAGAs there. It was like a kind of astounding, we, you know, we follow these guys, you know, we've been following the Proud Boys for years, 
Uh, I think these were dry runs for what happened on January 6th. And on uh, the 12th of December, that was really violent. When the sun goes down, that's when the trouble starts. And there were four stabbings that night involving the Proud Boys, right? And I followed the Proud Boys out to um, the um, monument on the, the 11th of December. They went out to the Washington Monument and they were doing, they got down and they prayed and they were praying for battle. <laughs> it was, it was, it was like uh, war. It was like that scene in glory, you know, just before they go off to war. <laughs> it was something so odd about the, the prayers because they're very, they're Christians. Uh, and then they went to the monument and then they walked up to the, uh, towards the Capitol on the mall. So they took the route that they took that morning. So I think the whole thing was a dry run. So you think they so planned the, it before, which means this guy's, oh yeah. when he's saying that there's a, Glenny, that there's a change in, in tone, that suddenly they're anti-government no, versus, versus no. just pro-Trump. Do you think that that's a legitimate uh, claim that he's making based on the fact that they've already practiced this a few times before? Well, if we take a step back, there's actually a bedrock and oh. be a witness in the case that he is investigating or she is investigating oh, or wow. prosecuting. He's made himself a witness both at the rally and wow. at the uh, the attack on the Capitol itself. And not only that, he's talking about his own personal observations, which now become evidence in the investigation and ultimately the case. Anything he said, keep this in mind, Zeb, anything he said that any defendant, any of the three or 400 people who have thus far been arrested, any of them want to sponsor as evidence in their defense at trial, he's made himself a trial witness. And a judge, I will tell you, 10 times out of 10, will issue a subpoena to bring Michael Sherwin into the criminal trial and testify on behalf of the insurrectionists because he's an eyewitness, if we believe what he's saying. Well, we have Can to I believe what he's saying. I mean, what what happens now that all these four hundred cases that are sitting in front of judges, all the all the prosecutors are going to say, all the defense attorneys are going to say, "Hey, listen, the, the the head prosecutor is a witness. We want our case thrown out right now." Can I tell? Oh, can I say try. something? So let me tell you what happened that morning, and why he's full of shit. <laughs> so I got to the um, uh, not obelisk. What do you call it? The ellipse. At uh, Trump is supposed to speak at 11, and I got there at 10, and I saw the Proud Boys coming up, and they were dressed not as Proud Boys, but I know them, uh, and they were going roo roo, which is a Proud Boy thing, and they met at the Washington Monument, and I filmed them, and all the three of the guys that have been indicted for conspiracy were there: Joe Biggs, um, oh gosh, I can't remember their names. There's three guys, um, and. Uh, Joe Biggs, I had filmed in Portland, you know, because we've been following these guys. So they leave the um, the foot of the Washington Monument at 1030. And I follow them towards the Capitol and I get about halfway down uh, in the mall, the Grand Mall, I guess it's called. And uh, I wanted to go back and hear Trump's speech at 11. But when I got back there, the, it was an hour late. So my friends were at all the breach points my journalist friends so there's four breach points just everyone is aware there's four yeah. breach points so these i think there were four breach points and then trump was yeah. an hour late for his speech so you were sort of stuck outside where yeah, sherwin but was fact, 
the fact that he said that they were different people, you, that's such bullshit. You couldn't tell unless you knew what you were looking for, uh, that there were people dressed in, you know, uh, tactical gear. They were, they weren't actually dressed in that when they left the speech, they weren't dressed in their tactical gear. They changed when they got there into their, you know, they had their bulletproof vests and stuff, but when they left the, they just looked like regular Trump supporters and they had, you know, Trump flags and stuff. But what happened was when I finally got Man, down there, which about one, the first uh, breach had already occurred. And that was the, um, what do you call it? The, the barricades where they push the cops, they push through the cops, the barricades. The first breach was, I think, 1258, about one o'clock. And I arrived about, so his observation of all this is based on either he knew the game plan or he studied, he studied it. It wasn't from his direct experience, which is he's making it sound like, because when I got there, there was nobody on the scaffolding, but you couldn't see what was going on where the breach was taking place because there was 30,000 people there. There was no way I could see a few yards away that were my friends. I found out later, my friends were there. My One of my friends was in the door, his, the shot of the cop being squashed. That's a friend of mine. We didn't know that was happening, but we saw explosions and we heard, you know, uh, we saw uh, smoke and stuff, but we didn't know what it was. And then the guys on megaphones kept saying, take them, you know, get up on the scaffolding, get up on the scaffolding. Sandy, I want, you, I want you to stand by because we're going to talk a little bit more, but let's go to Ghost Suit. I just want to, two more questions from you for you, Glenn, before you run away from us. Um, oh, one is sorry. you've got two, you know, you've got the Oath Keepers and you've got the Proud Boys. Those two are conspiracy cases that are developing separately, right? Um, and then the presumption is, at least from my end, the presumption is that we'll land up seeing those two sort of attempt to lead up to Roger Stone because Roger Stone was the sort of head militia guy for the whole thing and likely was in contact with both uh, the uh, Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. And he also had, you know, regularly used the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers as security. Here's a picture with him and the Oath Keepers behind him. I mean, he was very intimately aware, especially especially on the morning of the march, of what they were doing. So um, I guess I'm curious about whether you think that that's what's going to happen, whether these two conspiracy cases are going to lead to another a bigger conspiracy involving roger stone now that these proud boys and oath keepers are facing serious criminal charges and i predict we're going to see superseding indictments with even more serious criminal charges including sedition the proud boys ain't going to be so proud and the oath keepers ain't going to keep their oath they are all going to flip on roger stone because none of these people are strong human beings. I'm not trying to be smart alecky or unkind, but you know, if if what it takes for you to feel strong is strapping a semi-automatic weapon across your belly and marching around and yelling and belittling, you know, the weak or the marginalized, you're not a strong human being. Your core is not strong. They're going to get pressured by my friends and former colleagues at the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. Many of my former homicide prosecutors, when I was chief of homicide, are now taking point on these criminal prosecutions in D.C. These proud boys, these oath keepers are going to break. They're going to flip and they're going to give up anybody they need to give up to reduce their prison time. Right. Unless the case is blown up. Right. Unless they unless they're 
lawyer goes into court and says, well, Sherwin just blew up our case, let us off, which is a possibility. Um, I also want to talk to you about this exciting project you're involved in, which is the Democracy Pledge, uh, which I think is just a great idea. Um, why don't you tell our viewers what the Democracy Pledge is and how they can learn more about it? Sure. So we have a group of people. We call ourselves Team Justice, an all-volunteer group. We do not fundraise. We do not ask for donations. But we try to come up with creative ways to give citizens the opportunity to fully engage in the fight for democracy. You know, one of the things that we're just finishing up is a letter that we drafted to all 50 state attorneys general, CC to the governors, urging them uh, with signatories from all 50 states by the thousands, urging them to open criminal investigations into preventable coronavirus deaths. Because as a 22-year homicide prosecutor in D.C. of my 30 years as a prosecutor, I can tell you there is homicide liability for what Trump and Kushner and Pence and the others did to the American people. Uh, so that's one project we're just finishing up. The other one that we've just launched is the Democracy Pledge. And all it is is asking corporations, companies and businesses to take a stand in favor of democracy. It's kind of like asking people not to kick puppies, right? It shouldn't be a heavy lift. And once the companies, the businesses, and the corporations decide if they want to stand with democracy or they want to stand against democracy by supporting you know, the, the Ted Cruz's and the Josh Hawley's of the world, the Ron Johnson's, then the consumers, I think, ought to know that. So we have a website where we're collecting up this information asking companies, are they willing to pledge in favor of democracy? If so, we've got their name, their logo. If a consumer, if a person goes to the website, clicks on their logo, it takes them right to the company's website. So consumers can make informed decisions when they're buying sneakers or they want some ice cream, whether they're gonna spend their hard-earned dollars on sneaker companies and ice cream makers who support democracy, or if they want to spend it on people who don't support democracy. We're not trying to be heavy handed. If you go to the website, let me give people the, the um, what is it called? The, the, the URL. The, the, thank, thank you. See, you know I'm e-competent. <laughs> so it's uh, www, it's the D pledge, the letter D, the D pledge com and on Twitter we're at the D pledge and people can go there it's a very simple straightforward uh, intuitive website and there are four sentences where we ask companies to take a stand in favor of democracy and we're you know it's not like our way or the highway if a company's like well we kind of like it but we'd like to word it in our own way great then we'll put that on the website this is really about consumer rights because voters voices are really loud but for corporate America, consumers' voices are even louder. We're just trying to get fair, accurate information out to the consumer that they can then act on. That is the goal of the Democracy Pledge. And it's not the it's D Pledge. The D Pledge.com, right? Yes. Um, and it's, it's not about the, being Democrat or being Republican. No. This is not a party thing. It's about whether you support democracy, small d democracy, um, not the big, not the party. And I think that's important for everyone to realize that, um, you know, it used to be a taken for granted 
especially the Republicans, you used to take for granted that they were in favor of democracy. These days, you don't know for sure. Um, but there's certainly a lot of Republicans now and former Republicans who are very much in favor of democracy, and they would want to show their support as well uh, for the D pledge. So uh, I hope people check it out. And I hope they they give it support. And if you're an owner of a company, uh, you know, please sign up for the D pledge. It's a great way to connect with your consumers in a meaningful way. So uh, that's a great idea. Both your ideas are really good, Glenn. So thank you very much for doing that. Thank you, Zev. Appreciate it. And uh, people can check out your podcast, Justice Matters, um, wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, yep. hopefully we'll and see on you YouTube, there's a new new video every day on my channel, Justice Matters. And, you know, we are uh, we're an all volunteer outfit. So if anybody wants to come over to Patreon.com and support our all volunteer efforts, you're welcome to do that. But one way or another, you know, we are still banging out a legal video every single day trying to break down in layman's terms what the heck is going on in our federal government now in our former federal government with Trump and company and what the legal issues of the day really mean. Put them in context, break them down and give people information they can use. And the Patreon address is, is it under your name or is it under uh, Justice Matter? Under my name, Glenn Kirshner. Okay. Well, great. Thanks so much, Glenn. Appreciate your time tonight. Hopefully we'll see you again soon on the show. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ev. Thanks, Sandy. Okay. Let's get Sandy back in here. Hey, Sandy. Um, okay. Boy, was I uh, blown away by some of that uh, interesting detail that Glenn gave us about, uh, yeah. about how compromising the situation is now that Sherwin has basically blown up the case, it sounds like, for many of these yeah. people. That's really kind of stunning, yeah. but not really when you think about, uh, well, about the Trumps. I wanted, to just, I wanted to say something about um, Roger Stone, Michael Flynn, General Michael Flynn, uh, and uh, Ali Alexander, um, all these right-wing people that were involved in all three of these rallies, all three rallies had the same organizers and the same, they're all, they're all there. Mm-hmm. Bannon is a mystery character. But, well, he's uh, more involved in the Rudy strategy, spoke, I think. Yeah, but he warned the day before that something huge was going to happen. Yeah. He warned that, uh, I don't know the exact wording of it. Uh, Roger Stone, these people have spoke. Michael Flynn, Roger Stone, Alex Jones, I filmed those guys. And Rudy spoke at the uh, Ellipse mm-hmm. that day. This and is really, oh, this is the crowd. This is the crowd that did yeah, it Yeah, this all. is the incredible. You know, Michael Flynn, yeah. was, and I, you know, maybe Eric Prince needs to be on here somewhere. Well, I don't know if he's in Prince, the city. Yeah. Um, oh, here's, and, the, here's the thing. The, yeah. the Proud Boys and the um, Oath Keepers, I'm sorry, because it's something Glenn said really hit me. The Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters, that's the, those are the soldiers. That's the army. Mm-hmm. But their, their, their channel was called Boots on the Ground. They had some kind of special way. You couldn't get a cell uh, signal there at all, or I would have found out more that was going on. I didn't find out until I got back to my hotel. But they had a a special channel of a special app, and it was called Boots on the Ground. They were taking orders from the generals. Who were the generals? Well, we think that at least uh, Michael Flynn and – in Roger Stone, right. and you're right, or he's right about uh, about these guys flipping. I mean, they're these guys aren't. I don't want to say they're not smart enough, but they're not strategically. This was a big, <laughs> this is a huge military operation. It really was. It really was. It was you know, to, to like stopwatch. 
And then you, we saw in the um, indictments yesterday for the Proud Boys, these guys had uh, radios with them, uh, these Chinese-made radios that they were yeah, communicating yeah. with each other, which means not only was there a plan, they were executing a plan in a coordinated effort. So when we talk about four breach points, there were four breach points based on instructions and coordination that they were conducting yeah. over these walkie-talkies. It wasn't just some random, you know, hey, I'll meet yeah. you on the other side when we're done. No, this yeah. was a coordinated effort. We yeah. know, for example, Example that at um, there was you know an early group of people that went to the east. There were two sort of two big approaches: one from the east side and one from the west side. That's a little confusing because in this picture here, um, the west entrance is at the bottom of the of the yeah. picture here. So it's um, right you know in between the the Senate chamber and the House of Representatives, and the and uh -huh. the east entrance is on the other side, sort of at the top. Yes, and it seems I was that on what, the west. Yeah, you were on the West, where we saw that yeah. huge crowd, and so was Sherwin at the West. But it seems the first crowd that <laughs> went in came in from the East side. They came in from the top of this picture, well, and then they and then they got all the way through and opened the door for the people to I come in from the, from the West. Now, there was an early breach on the West side on the barriers, yeah. but I'm talking about the building yeah. itself. The no, way that- the New York Times has an excellent, uh, an excellent uh, police uh, communication. Um, I wish they had more times on it, but uh, they talk about the actual breach. The first breach, my understanding of it is uh, I was in the West on the front. I came directly from that, whatever that street is, Pennsylvania Avenue or whatever, uh, Constitution, directly. On, and then I saw all these people up on the lawn and they were tearing down the fences and they were moving up towards the terrace where the scaffolding was for the inauguration right but on the left of that is we saw when i finally got over there i finally saw on the left there was explosions there was red smoke and smoke smoke and people screaming and i didn't know and that was what was that first breach was happening and that was about 150 or something i think i i'm yeah. really not clear about the times but the yeah, new york times happened, has got I think what happened was you know there was the initial barriers were broken first at around noon and then right. you see the proud right. boys breaking through that barrier and then they sort of started making their way up through the scaffolding towards the building some people started climbing up the yeah. walls on the side but they couldn't quite get yeah. into the doors it was according to at least two sources that i saw um the the doors were opened by people on the inside and those were people who had come in through, the, oh, uh, through yeah. the east side doors so they come in and then they open the doors for the people uh, on the west side um that's a very planned thing that was coordinated and it was coordinated uh actually uh cbs sunday morning a couple of weeks ago did a really good uh uh layout of the military i didn't even thought of it like that that it was a four-pronged breach mm -hmm. they described it so uh, it was like on all sides, right? But where I was as a producer, I had the dress extras, right? Mm. I had the visual where I was, mm. you know, with 20,000, I don't know how many people were there. All the, you know, and the they were just like crowd. regular, he was right, he was right. Those were like the regular people. Uh, well, they came in a lot, you were, know, the initial breach was the Proud Boys and then, and then everyone sort of came yeah. in uh, afterwards, or the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, which is why I think the conspiracy charges are, are being laid against those guys. Uh, and then, the, then Trump yeah. ended his speech because as you po rightly point out, he kept his speech late in order to give them time to sort of- Till after the breach. Yeah, after, after the, the breach. breach. So yeah, it's really right. interesting. And he said, you know, I'll be with you. And I left early and I walked, you know, I had to go pee. <laughs> and so I missed the whole thing. And then when I got there, 
Um, the whole rest of the day, and I still mind you, I didn't know what was going on at all because I had been separated from my friends and we usually communicated on our phones, but you couldn't get a signal. So there was no way for us to communicate and it was pandemonium. And so I just made my way trying to get to where all the people were, which is the um, the terrace, the first terrace, which is there's scaffolding on either side of this little kind of canyon thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually, a couple of hours later, I finally got it. And plus, I'm, a sc I'm scared I'm going to get COVID because <laughs> nobody was wearing masks. Right. I was wearing goggles. You know? But uh, when I got there, you know, there was blood on the ground. <laughs> I know. I saw that video last people. time you were on. It's really very a traumatic thing to actually uh, cover, and I'm sure for the people there, also quite traumatic, especially the Capitol Police, oh, who must have felt just completely. Oh. You know, they 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 were holding the line quite well against the initial front of Proud Boys that went in, but then to have to see mm -hmm. another twenty thousand people coming towards them must have just been terrifying. I mean, it just must. But have here, been. here's what here's what bothers me about. Um, Sherwin's uh, 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 giddy presentation. Yeah. He was so rehearsed as to what happened. But if you were like there on your jogging suit, you didn't know what was going on. You didn't know there were people dressed in tactical gear. Or not. I mean, you would have had to have been at all those planning locations. Meetings. And the planning meetings. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, which yeah. I mean, he followed, he knew to follow the crowd all the way from uh, the ellipse yeah. all the way to, which is a long way, frankly. But there was no crowd. There, there, but he started off with the ellipse and then he moved all the way to, uh, decided to follow the, uh, the Oath Keepers all the way to the Capitol. That's a long way to go if you just, I don't know, maybe I'll follow these people. That's a... Uh, that's sort of like intentional witnessing. No, he was there was to like, witness it. He was observing. I yeah. think he was there observing legally what kind of trouble they were going to be in. I don't. Could it be. Was and also knowing reversed. that he could later destroy the case by being a witness and then finding himself in a conflict of interest situation. I'm also really interested in what happens to these people. You know, um, people like uh, like Ginny um, Thomas who clearly was involved in, mm. in helping execute this as part of the uh, Council for National Policy. Of course, Michael Flynn, we've mentioned mm -hmm. before, there's a whole group of people at the CNP uh, that, you know, it's just, it blows your mind when you think about how many people from that organization were involved in setting up Stop the Steal. And I had some pictures here, but uh, I don't have them right now. But, you know, look, at, look at this graphic here. It'll give you a sense of how many people were involved in, in just setting this up from this organization, the Council for National Policy. I mean, almost oh, every one of these good. different organizations had something to do with it. And they're all connected to the CNP. Uh -huh. So that's my other big question is, yeah, are we going to see a, a conspiracy charge involving the CNP as well? And I don't think we're going to get anywhere well, near that, judging by what Sherwin was saying. You know, when they had the uh, bin Laden thing and they're all sitting in the room, there had to have been a war room. There had to have been, right. and who was in that room? General Flynn and his gen and his general brothers, mm -hmm. right? Uh, Roger Stone, Steve Bannon. I don't know, but there had to have been. They were giving directions. At the very least, they were giving directions to people on the bullhorns that kept going until four thirty in the afternoon, mm -hmm. and then at one point, you know, two fascinating points. One point at four ten. Uh, a guy with the bullhorn, bullhorn read Trump's tweet that he sent at 2:28, saying Mike Pence didn't have the courage, right? And then he could, and then he spurred them on to keep fighting at 4:10. Yeah. And then 4:20, a guy says, uh, uh, Mayor Bowser 
wanted to send in the National Guard, but the Defense Department said, no, thank you. <laughs> how did he know that? Yeah, how would you know something like that? How could you possibly know that unless General uh, Flynn, Charles Flynn, maybe who left the meeting early, uh, the meeting to hold back the the Capitol Police from uh, from coming to save the Capitol, uh, sorry, the, uh, the, the National Guard from coming to save the Capitol Police, he left the meeting early. Why did he leave the meeting early? He probably left early to call his brother, Mike Flynn, and tell him that it's going to be a no-go for, for the National Guard. Or maybe he was going to tell them it's going to be a while for the National Guard. But he get, probably gave them. him room, uh, it would be my opinion. Uh, and it's just an opinion. It's a hunch is of what Remember happened. The letter. Remember the letter from Char from yeah. Chris uh, Miller. Yeah, same thing. On the fourth. In the, four days before, and, and you know, we've heard from Chris Miller, but not by a real journalist. The journalist who did it for Vice magazine forgot to ask all the critical questions, so we don't really know. <laughs> Uh, you know what went on at that uh, at that uh, meeting, and I, you know, I'd be really interested to hear uh, exactly what went on. But Sandy, I want to thank you so much. Any any other last thoughts that you want to share with our with our crowd well, about, uh, I, I, about? I'm happened? just convinced that at least Michael Flynn and you know uh, all the people that were spoke at the Freedom thing the night before on the on the fifth were Roger Stone, Alex Jones, George Papadopoulos, mm. uh, all the people that he pardoned, Mike Flynn. Uh, uh, I forget who else, but uh, they he pardoned them for something they already did. <laughs> they didn't, you can't preempt, I don't believe. You can, you, you can do preemptive pardons. And that's what a, I'm wondering if what some of these uh, people are going to find in their back pockets. I should have asked Glenn about that, but uh, oh you know, I think Mike Flynn had a preemptive pardon and, and who, and who knows if Roger Stone does too. They, you know, we'll find out only once they get prosecuted, but wow. uh, if they get prosecuted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there, there, there was a war room. I, I'm, I take my life on it. There was some kind of command central that will hopefully come out that the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers were talking to. They weren't doing that all by themselves. They were communicating with somebody giving them orders. I think it's probably the most critical thing that people really need to take away from today is that, you know, despite what this guy said in 60 Minutes, there is much more of an organization that took uh, control of that event. There's no ways you have the size of control room that we saw Donald Trump in and Donald Trump Jr. in before the event took place, that massive control room built under a tent. Um, and, and there was not another control room then to also manage the actual um, storming of the Capitol. Clearly, those people on those walkie-talkies were talking to somebody. It sounds like they were getting very privileged, top-secret information from somebody on their walkie-talkies, which they were then sharing on bullhorns. Yes. So if there is yes. a conspiracy charge that ultimately leads to the Proud Boys and uh, the Oath Keepers being, in, in being more than just indicted, actually being sentenced, then you've got to ask the question, you know, who were they talking to? Who were they getting orders from? And we know, we know the Proud Boys that morning were in touch with somebody at the White House. And we know the right. Oath Keepers were seen by Roger Stone, or sorry, sorry, seen with Roger Stone outside of his hotel yeah. that morning. So there was yeah. definite communication on that day uh, with both the White House and Roger Stone about what was going on. And where was on. Trump? Where, where was, was Trump, Trump that day? Those three hours, where yeah. was he? Yeah, and where was he before? You know, they must have planned this all before. It seems like Alex Jones was in a planning meeting just a few days before, um, to, and he was going to lead this march. So if that was happening, mm -hmm. uh, Trump would have known because that meeting would came out of the White House. So you know, this seems like it was a Trump produced event yes, um, absolutely. and not just something absolutely. that he was on the stage saying, Oh, go ahead. I think he planned every piece of this and it'll be really Me interesting too. to see it's for his yeah. life, yeah. for his life. He was fighting yeah. for his life. Yeah. And that's um, what I think, uh, what's his face did too.
He's yeah. fighting for his life. It's really amazing that Sharon was the uh, prosecutor in Miami. Uh, I mean, that to me is already a red flag because the- Glenn uh, and Stone, and Stone, both of them. Right, Both right. of their cases. Yeah, but for him to have been a prosecutor in Miami, in, in Miami which is- you know, probably the shadiest of of um, of attorneys' offices. Epstein. Don't forget Epstein. Yeah, don't right. forget Epstein's right. right up the street there. And then, of course, uh, what was her name? There was a uh, oh, she was the attorney general there. Oh, Pam Bondi. Pam, Pam Bondi was there, and Pam ah. Bondi, not exactly the cleanest of politicians. Um, and he, I imagine Sherwin must have worked in her office or something like it. Um, oh, so oh you know, God. we're sort of seeing the structure of what's going on there. That's the show yeah. for tonight. I'm sorry it's abbreviated. Wow. I'm sure it's not quite everything we promised, but I uh, hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got a lot of information out of it. My thanks to Glenn Kirchner. We'll be back on Friday with another edition of Narrative Live. And thank you, Sandy. Thanks for being here tonight. And uh, good night, everybody. Okay. That was great. <laughs> Narrative is funded by viewers like was- you. Support our independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. Narrative.